Good morning, everyone. I am so delighted to be with you this morning in Memphis. Uh, My brother George, I'm so grateful for his friendship, for his love, and he is right. I have learned in ministry that... uh, that my ministry in, in Northeast D.C., I, I've learned that uh, good barbecue can cover a multitude of preaching sins. And so that's one of the ways I advance the kingdom. And it's important for me to study as I've been around Memphis trying out different spots. I'm just trying to improve the ministry. It's a sacrifice I have to make for the kingdom. But I'm really glad that I've had the chance to do that. And I really am uh, delighted to be with you. I, I bring you greetings from Grace Mosaic in D.C., um, it is a privilege to be with you. And I want to invite you to turn with me to our scripture passage for this morning, which comes from the book of Exodus chapter 2. And I changed up on, uh, on the team, so the, the passage in your bulletin is not the right passage. I'm going to be reading chapter 2, the first 10 verses. This is God's word. Beginning with verse one. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers and the flowers fade. If you would, please pray with me. Lord, I am thankful that this morning you are the true preacher. I pray that your word would go out with power by your spirit's ministry. And I ask, Lord, that you would take my five loaves and two fish and feed your people. I pray that as a result of this time this morning, we would be hearers and doers of your word. And that Memphis would find the gospel more beautiful and more believable because of this community. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Redemption stories are everywhere. In fact, Hollywood has made billions of dollars by selling redemption. Think about it. There are movies like Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump, Gladiator, 
Stories like Saving Private Ryan. We love stories of redemption. We love stories where people go from rags to riches. We love stories where people are raised up out of lowly circumstances and they are brought into the place of success. We love to see the story where someone goes from suffering to success. We love stories of redemption. And there's perhaps no more popular story of redemption than the story of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus. There is a universal appeal to the Exodus across cultures, across ethnic groups. There are many people who have appealed to the Exodus because of its message. They have appealed to the Exodus in the context of their difficulties and their strivings and their struggles of life. Think about a representative list. The Protestant reformers of Europe framed escape from religious tyranny as their exodus. The Puritans made appeal to the exodus as they left the strictures of England for America. Latin American theology, South African black theology, Indian Dalit theology, all appeal to the book of Exodus as their framework for their self-understanding in the context of their struggles for freedom. Enslaved African Americans appealed to the Exodus and cried out to God for rescue from their circumstances. Civil rights leaders, they called out on the Exodus in their struggle through the 50s and 60s. And the Exodus helped these communities to understand their struggles and their sufferings in the context of a larger story in which God saw, God remembered, God would act. All of these communities identified themselves in the story and they found the God of the Bible to be the kind of God who would meet people in the most dire circumstances. The name of the book of Exodus, originally in Hebrew, is, these are the names of. And those who were translating the book into Greek decided that that wasn't a fancy enough title. And so what they did is they looked at the message of the book and they came up with a better title. That title was Exodus, which in Greek means the way out. The way out. And this book, I would submit to you, has universal appeal across cultures and across time because it is true that all of us are looking for a way out. All of us are looking for a way out of something. All of us are looking for a way out of some kind of stricture, some kind of suffering, some kind of oppression or some kind of circumstance that we are not powerful enough to deal with on our own. All of us are looking for a way out and all of us really deep down inside, we are longing for that stubborn hope in the face of the challenges that lets us know that God sees us. God hears us, God remembers us, and God will act on our behalf. We're all looking for a way out. And though Hollywood is known for selling redemption, the God of the Bible is known for giving it away freely to those who trust in him. And so this morning, we're going to get into the very beginning of this story of Exodus. And we're going to approach this text and see the way out by looking at two points. 
a timeless problem and a priceless solution. So let's look at our first point, a timeless problem. Excuse me. Chapter one sets the context for our passage for today. And in chapter one of the book of Exodus, we learn that the Exodus story is just the continuation of the story that began in the book of Genesis. The story that begins at creation and follows on through the fall and goes through the promise that God made to Abraham with land, seed, blessing. It follows the the, the, the Israelites down to Egypt where we find the brothers of Joseph following him down to Egypt, not knowing that they were going to face an extraordinary mercy at the hands of their brother that they betrayed. And now Israel is in Egypt. And what we learn in chapter one is that while Israel was in Egypt, God was blessing his people. We learned that they were fruitful and they multiplied. God was blessing his people as he had always intended to bless them, to multiply so they could spread his glory over the earth. God was blessing them, but we learn of a change of circumstance in the book of Exodus. And that change of circumstance came with a new Egyptian dynasty that came into power. And what we learn is that this new Egyptian dynasty did not look on Israel the way the previous dynasty did. Now, the fact of the matter is that God's people had been nothing but a blessing to Egypt. In fact, it was the presence of God's people in Egypt that resulted in their very salvation from famine. Joseph, we remember that story, right? But this new Pharaoh rises to power, a new king rises to power, and he takes a different view of the other in his country. He looks at those people in his country and he draws the conclusion without any facts that they they were dangerous. He draws the conclusion about those people out there that they were a threat and he actually takes the identity of a victim. Here is the most powerful man in Egypt seeing himself as a victim. And as a result of seeing himself as a victim, he sees those people as competitors. He sees them as a threat. And so he enacts this policy. It has three stages, a a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. Plan A, he enacts a policy of violent enslavement of God's people. Plan B is infanticide by midwives. All of the women who were sitting at the birth stool to help Israelite women give birth, they were to take little baby boys and and kill them. Plan C was infanticide by any Egyptian. Pharaoh gives carte blanche opportunity to any Egyptian to throw a little baby boy from Israel into the Nile River. The Nile becomes the instrument of death, the death trap. For Israel. We said that the book of Exodus. Is titled Exodus. Meaning. The way out. But what is it that. Israel needed a way out of. According to chapter one. Israel needed a way out of the affliction. Of heavy burdens. In verse 11. They needed a way out of oppression and tyranny. Verse 12. They needed a way out of ruthless enslavement and forced labor, verse 14. 
They needed a way out of coercive government enforced immorality. Verses 15 through 16. They needed a way out of family devastation and genocide. Verse 16. They needed a way out of state-sponsored violence against their community. Verse 22. But think about the implications of their situation that are not explicitly stated in the text, but we know had to be a part of their lived reality. Think about it. They needed a way out of the terror that shrouded their existence. They needed a way out of the cloud of despair and hopelessness that hung over their lives. They needed a a way out of the, the felt worthlessness and forsakenness. Because here's the deal. It's very plain in the text that Israel was not just free to walk away from Egypt. They were not free to just say, I'm done with this place. I'm out of here. They were enslaved by forces far beyond them, more powerful than they were. And so they needed someone from the outside to come in and break the grip of the Pharaoh. Now, you might be sitting in here this morning and you might say, nice history lesson, pastor. But what's this got to do with me? And to you, I would say, here's what this has to do with you. It has everything to do with you. Because as we said, we too are looking for the way out. Because whether we realize it or not, we have modern day pharaohs that hold us captive and we need to be made free. And just like Israel of old, we are not free to just walk away from these oppressors. We need to be rescued by God. We need God to break the grip of the enslavements that we face. We need release from modern day pharaohs, such as success and accomplishment. Now, success and accomplishment, they're nice to have, but they make for terrible God replacements. And when success and accomplishment become the thing that we need in order to define ourselves, in order to feel like we're worth something, they become pharaohs. We need a way out. We need a way out of materialism and selfish hoarding. We know what it's like to feel the tug that just a little bit more will actually scratch the itch in our souls. There was one of the, the, the great uh, industrialists of old, billionaire, was asked one time, how much would be enough? And he said, just a little bit more. We know that pool, don't we? But it becomes a pharaoh. Because you know what it's like? It's like this. The, the, the succeed, achieve, accumulate. You know what that's like? It's like make more bricks. No straw. What are you doing resting? You're not free to rest. One of the greatest gifts that God gives his people on the other side of rescue is rest. The one thing they were not free to have. And a lot of times these pharaohs of achievement, success, accumulation of our material goods, we believe that we cannot rest. It's one of the most beautiful gifts. It's one of the most countercultural ways that we witness to the world when we rest. But we need a way out. We need a way out of lust and sensuality. We need a way out of shallow notions of beauty. We need a way out of the captivity that we face to technology. We are often captives of technology. 
in this world, in, in a world, in a culture that is the result of modernity, in late modernity, we tend to believe that every problem can be reduced to a technical problem and we can find technical solutions. That's why we place so much hope in our technological advances. But it's very easy to see that these technologies become enslavements. How do I know this? Because often, if you're like me, you may find yourself working for your phone rather than your phone working for you. Maybe I don't have any witnesses in here this morning that jump when their phone dings. And All right, I'm going to preach to somebody in here this morning. (laughs) Maybe it's your neighbor, I don't know. We need freedom, though. We need a way out. We need a way out of cultural and political orthodoxies where we feel like we have to do what the culture says we, we have to do. We have to jump when it says jump or we have to follow tightly a political party in order to be whole, in order to be safe. We need a way out. We need a way out of our own goodness. Because oftentimes our our conviction that we're really good people, we're really decent. Don't you realize I'm a pretty good person? I read a chapter a day to keep the devil away. I help little old ladies across the street. I show, I buy Girl Scout cookies. Them thin mints though, they're good. I'm a decent person. And a lot of times, when we are so deeply convinced that we are decent people, that we are good people, it becomes an enslavement that prevents us from really experiencing the joy of the gospel, which is being loved for nothing, which is being loved in your brokenness, which is being loved in your wretchedness and your weakness. That's, that's a joy that is untouchable by the fleeting pleasures of just being a decent person. We need a way out of our own goodness. But all of these enslavements are simply a way of saying that we need a way out of sin, death, and the devil's grip. We need a way out. We need this story of the Exodus because this story of the Exodus gives us the God of the Exodus who sees us, who knows us, who hears us, who remembers us, and who frees us. He is the way out. And what does this text tell us about this God of the Exodus? In in this text, we see that God cares about the lives of the oppressed. He cares about life in the womb. He cares about life fresh out of the womb. He cares about dignifying women. And all of these, they're not political points. These are textual points that are right on the face of the passage. Look at the the narrative framing, the positive narrative framing for all of the women in this text who resist the infanticidal mania of Pharaoh. Do you see the women being highlighted here? Moses' mother, Moses' sister, Shifra, Pua, and even Pharaoh's own daughter work against the evil of the power in charge. The scriptures are framing it up, and we're seeing a God who notices and deploys the dear women of this story. That fits one political narrative, doesn't it? Oh, 
but look at the God of the Bible wrecking our political idolatries because God cares about life in the womb, too. You see that in this passage, we see that life in the womb is specifically a blessing of God. It's, it's, it's the continuation of the story, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent is always trying to extinguish the seed of the woman. And that's what's happening in this passage. But what we see is that that, that blessing in the womb is distinctly recognized as a blessing, a gift from God. So much so that God rewards the women who, who resist the evil of Pharaoh by giving them children of their own. That, that fits one narrative and wrecks another narrative. What I'm saying is this, friends. As we prepare for 2020, I don't know how y'all are, are thinking about things down here in Memphis, but I get to live in Washington, D.C. and be in the thick of all that it's, that's coming down the pipeline in 2020. And if I could just be a friend to you this morning, what I would say to you is this. Make sure you are listening to the whole counsel of God as you enter into 2020. Think about the vastness of what the scriptures say. The scriptures ruin every human political outlook. And the scriptures call those who are politically conservative Christians to avoid conserving the things that God is judging in the end. And he calls politically progressive Christians to avoid a false kind of progress That will be judged by God in the end. Here's a hint that I often bring to my people who are working on the hill, who are working with senators and governors and in different governmental administrations and systems. I often tell them that if you can't find a list of faults with your political party, then you're not a conservative, you're a captive, and you're not a progressive. You're a prisoner. But the God of the Exodus provides a way out so that we can return to being salt and light, so that we can return to being a peculiar people, so that we can return to being the kind of light that we were called to be in a dark world. We are called to be a good news people in a bad news world. And the only way we'll do that is if we receive God's way out of the enslavements that we face. Because here's the deal, friends, and this is if you want to get if you want to get Exodus and why Exodus matters for your life. I want to tell you one thing right now. God is not here to help you to improve your life in Egypt. He's not here to help you to manage your life in Egypt. He's here to provide a way out of Egypt. The God of the Bible would not have you settle for a comfortable life in Egypt. You know what managing life in Egypt or improving life in Egypt is? It's like having all of the material possessions and not having Jesus. It's like spending your whole life living for yourself, accumulating for for yourself, for you and yours, and never taking notice or regard of your neighbor. That's what it's like to improve life in Egypt. But God is not here to improve your life in Egypt. He's here to give you a way out of Egypt and to bring you to the place of promise, the land of milk and honey, the land of plenty. He's here to get you out of your Egypt. 
This whole situation is a timeless problem. There are different pharaohs. Egypt looks different over the ages in some ways, but the God of the Exodus provides a priceless solution for all of us, which brings us to our our final point, a priceless solution. Now, when we come to the birth narrative of Moses, what we recognize is that we are getting a picture of God's mediator. The way the narrator sets us up is incredible. I want you to to consider this text. By setting the birth of Moses in this narrative context that we just laid out in the first point in chapter 1, he's showing us the way in which the mediator is uniquely suited to be a mediator for Israel because he was born into the context of his people. I'm going somewhere, y'all. This mediator is uniquely suited to represent his people to God and to represent God to his people because he was born into the conflict of his people. He was born amidst the fears of his people. He was born under the evil tyranny and abuse of power and oppression of his people. He was born under the same death sentence as his people. You realize Moses was supposed to be aborted. He wasn't supposed to make it. He was supposed to be at the bottom of the Nile. But the birth of Moses breaks through the despair and the hopelessness of the narrative. His birth is the interruption that lets us know that bondage will not last. His birth is the interruption that lets us know that Pharaoh and his kingdom have an expiration date on them. They're not going to be able to survive the long term because God is going to break through as a liberator. And God is going to deploy his mediator. In verse three, I want you to look at verse three. Excuse me. I want you to enter into this story for a minute. And I want you to imagine, particularly you moms and dads. Or those of you who who have children who are close to you. I know in the Presbyterian church, we're all godparents. And we got to see some of those precious little ones up here. But I want you to imagine what's happening in verse 3. Don't just scoot by it. it. Let it settle in on you. Moses' mother, when she cannot hide her child anymore, she prepares a little ark for him, a little boat. And she puts him into that little boat and through tear-streamed face, she watches her little boy going off into the death trap. No doubt she had heard the message of other mothers in Israel who had lost children to that river. And here she sends her baby boy out into that river and with him goes her heart. Her heart is torn. She is emotionally a wreck. Imagine with me the heart of this mother who lets go of her son into this death trap called the Nile. But what we're going to see is that Moses is the only child who will go into this death trap, who will go into the Nile and emerge alive. I'm going somewhere, y'all. 
Though he was a common Israelite, he's, he's found on the shore of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter. And he is adopted into the royal family. In other words, this mediator is going to inhabit two worlds. The royal world and the world of those who were broken and downhearted and outcast. He's going to inhabit those two worlds. And, and what you and I need to see here this morning is that this mediator in Exodus chapter 2 is a preparation for us to see, appreciate, and worship the true and greater mediator, Jesus Christ. What you got to see is that God's way out comes to us because God found a way in. A way in to our circumstances, a way into our suffering, a way into our humanity so that he could sympathize and save, so that he could be a great high priest for us, so that he could minister to the brokenhearted, so that he could feel our pains, engage our sorrows. He was known as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and afflicted. He became the God who entered into our experience of abuse, our experience of suffering and trial. He was born with a death sentence over his head, the same death sentence that hangs over you and I. He had the death sentence of that evil King Herod over his head. But more importantly, he had the death sentence of a holy God hanging over his head because he was going to represent the broken the, the, the rebel, the sinner. But you and I, as we appreciate the heart of Moses' mother tearing and breaking as she sent her son into the Nile, it only begins to scratch the surface of the heart of God the Father as he sent his son into the world for people like us. Imagine the heart of the father breaking as he sends his son into a world that will reject him, into a world that will despise him, into a world that will mock him, and ultimately into a world that would kill him. That's why we sing songs like, How deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. You think of the heart of God the Father for you. Have you had doubts about God? Have you had pictures in your mind about what God is like that are more informed by the media than the scriptures? I want you to see the God of the Bible is a God who would rather go through hell for you than to have glory without you. He loves you more than you love yourself. 
His love is immeasurable. His love has no boundaries. You will sooner number the grains of sand on all the seashores of this world than you'll number his many mercies toward you. It would take you an eternity to digest the fullness of his love for you. Do you see his love in sending his son to you, portrayed in the heart of a mother broken in the sending of her son into the waters? But the beauty and the hope of the gospel, friends, it's only part of the story that Jesus went to the cross because early on Sunday morning, he rose up from the grave with all power in his hands. He stepped out of the tomb. He took a neon vacancy sign. He put it over the top of it and he cried out, all authority has been given unto me. And when he got to his disciples, they said, authority over what, Jesus? And he said, pick something. Authority over all the things that afflict you. Authority over all the things that frighten you. Authority over all the things that intimidate you and crush you. All power has been given unto me. And one day his glory will cover the earth as the waters do the sea when he ultimately flexes and he condemns death to the grave. Where there will be no more tears. Where there will be no more goodbyes. There will be Joy forevermore. It's resurrection hope because Jesus goes to the cross, the death trap, and he emerges alive. In this story, we see that Moses is a common Israelite adopted by the royal family. But in the gospel, we see divine royalty adopting a broken human family. The power of this passage is in its It's in in its anticipation of the true and greater mediator. The birth of Christ breaks through the despair and hopelessness of humanity. His birth is the interruption that lets us know that bondage will not last. That's good news this morning. That's good news. And when you put this together, when you look at Jesus, the true and greater mediator... And you realize that God's plan is to make you like Jesus. Then what that what that does when you put the two of these together is it begins to reframe our identity as the church. It begins to reframe our identity and we understand ourselves to be a community of mediators. We understand ourselves to be the kind of people who are making peace in the world. Now, look, we all know that there are enough people who are doing the work of division in the world. Am I right? There are enough people who are doing the work of of division and and breaking people apart. But what if this community was most well known for the way that it brought people together? What if this community was known as the kind of community that was able to get enemies at the same table in order to make them friends? What if this community was known for the strength and the beauty and the power of of its welcome in this city. Wouldn't that be beautiful? That would, that would present Jesus as more beautiful and more believable. Like, like people will not seek out the great why of the church until they begin to taste this mediation of all the people in this city who ought to be the fiercest advocates of those who are down and out. It ought to be those who were down and out 
and looked into the face of God to see him smiling back, extending his strong arm and pulling us out. We ought to be that people. That's what the gospel ought to do in us. What I'm trying to say is this, and I'm going to put it in an illustration. One of my guilty pleasures is going to the mall. Not because I like shopping, but because I like to go to the food court. And when I go to the food court, there are these wonderful people in the food court who are holding up these trays. And and, and they got these little pieces of meat and they got these little toothpicks in them. And they say, sir, would you like to try some bourbon chicken? And I say, why, yes. Yes, I would. And I take one of those little bourbon chickens and it never fails. I get like three steps away and I say, "Mm, I want some more of that. So what I do is I walk around the food court. And since I look like I could be anybody's people, the next time I come around, I say, hola, que es eso? You know? (laughs) And they look at me like, I thought I just saw you come through here. I said, no sé, my friend, I don't know. And so I get another piece and then I walk around and I come with my Arabic accent. You know, I get my three pieces. But, But why do these people stand out there with this tray with all these little appetizers and, and the little toothpicks in them. Why do they do that? Here's why. They want you to get a little taste of what you could have in full measure. They want to draw you in. They want to give you a taste so that you'll come in and get the real thing. The church is supposed to be the appetizer of glory. When people experience our community, they ought to get a foretaste of the joy that is to come. They ought to get a taste of the welcome that is to come, the love that is to come. And they ought to have that little taste and then they'll want to get the real thing themselves. That's what we're supposed to be. That's our identity. And that's what it looks like to be a mediatorial people, to go in on behalf of those who cannot help themselves, to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves, to spend our lives in the the service of the other. You know, the church is the only institution in the world that was intentionally created for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. That's why we exist, for the benefit of the other. And any time you find yourself recoiling against this, I want you to think of the words of Frederick Douglass. I just recently, uh, in this past year, read the, the chief biography of Frederick Douglass, written by David Blight, who's a historian from Yale. And in this biography, um, I came across one of the speeches of Frederick Douglass. And you remember the time, it was fraught with with difficulty, it was fraught with difference, right? And Frederick Douglass made this appeal in one of his speeches. And he said, everybody is an abolitionist. They want freedom for themselves. It's not strange, but intuitive for us to want freedom for ourselves. But then he turned to the audience and he said, But how many of you will be abolitionists for the other? How many of you will be abolitionists for your neighbors? What I'm telling you is it's too small of a goal this morning for God's people to simply want freedom for yourself. It's good, but it isn't a big enough picture to be sufficiently Christian. What if you became the kind of person who longed as much for the freedom of your neighbors as you do for your own freedom? What if you longed for your neighbors to have a way out as much as you long for yourself to have a way out? Well, you know what? Then you'd be reflecting the beauty of Jesus and his other centeredness. The one who did not count 
his equality with God as expressed by grasping, but humbling himself, giving, taking on the form of a servant. He had every right to receive all the glory and the praise, but instead he put his rights on the shelf so that he could seek our benefit. All I'm talking about is being a community that lives in light of the gospel. I know we love our rights here in America. Nothing wrong with rights. But here's the, here's the reality. You may have the right, according to American law, to seek your own benefit and be selfish. But you don't have that right as a citizen of the kingdom. Uh, our, our higher identity must always overcome our smaller identities. Let it be said of this church that you are a community of mediators seeking the freedom and the well-being of your neighbors. And in this way, God will be glorified. People will see the great worth of Jesus and people will, will stream to this community. Let it be so. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Surprising, challenging us in ways that we didn't anticipate. We all face this when we hear your word. And so we ask, Lord, that as we hear the challenges of your word, as we hear the encouragements and the comforts of your word, that we would be formed by it, that we would be marked by it. Lord, we want your fingerprints all over our lives. And so we ask that you would act, that you would hear us. I pray for friends in here who are struggling with powers that are too great for them and they need to be free. I pray, Lord, that you would act on their behalf. I pray for our friends in here this morning who are wrestling through issues of doubt and faith, who aren't sure they, they know what to do with this Christian message. I pray, Lord, that you'd be near to them, that you would teach them, they would find you to be a credible savior. Lord, I pray for those in here this morning who are laboring to love their neighbors. I pray that you would help them to not grow weary in doing good. I pray that you would encourage them in the work of love, reminding them of your overwhelming love for them. Lord, let us, by your grace, be the kind of people that, that show how compelling and beautiful and powerful and good Jesus is. I pray this for my friends in here this morning that you would glorify yourself through us. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.